I don't know how your week's been. I don't know, um, maybe you were on retreat, maybe you weren't, but if you're anything at all like me, there's sometimes in your week where you seem to have a wait what moment. And if, if your life is anything like my life, those moments tend to stack up and all happen in like one week. Like you keep experiencing things like, wait, what? Like I think Steve had one of those moments. Steve right there, you can embarrass him with me. Steve had one of those moments on the way to fall retreat and on the way back from fall retreat because I have this thing when I'm driving a church van. It's, it's a game that I like to play called Don't Fall Asleep or We'll Get You. And so it's one of my favorite games um, that I play. And so... Um, so we're driving, and the guys that were in my van know how this game works. If you ever had the privilege uh, to ride with me? So if you fall asleep, it's basically like we're going to penalize you. Like, we believe that rest is important, except in the church van. And so we see someone's asleep for several times. It was Steve, that guy right there in the black. And um, Steve with the glasses, by the way. Steve was right there. He's in the third row. Take a look at him. Yep, that's Steve. And so what would happen in the van is, so right when somebody, in this case Steve, would fall asleep... Um, Steve, yeah, thank you for asking. Clarification, it is Steve June. So Steve June and some other guys, but mostly Steve June, uh, would fall asleep, and we would have somebody like near me, maybe it was Zach or Johnny. Once they fall asleep, they would count like three, two, one, and then that's when like the prank would happen. And so it's really important that you know you can get into my mind for a moment because I'm sure it led to a wait what moment for Steve because right about at two, everyone's getting excited. We're about to like scream. At one, this is the important sequence. You honk. You swerve, and then at zero, everybody screams like you're about to meet Jesus in the very next moment. And so it happened to Steve twice, and the first time, I don't think it got him, or at least he like covered very well, you know, like, oh guys, I wasn't really asleep, you know. But the second time, you should have seen his face. I wish I had a photo. It was like he turned into Lucifer in that moment. He was so mad. I was like, this is his last Chi Alpha retreat, but it was worth that moment. I mean, he had that wait what moment. I've been traveling a lot. We've had some retreats, and I, I love taking things, um, you know, from hotel bathrooms. I feel like it's a gift to me that I can use later. I want It's a stewardship issue. I'm not talking about shower curtains and lamps. I'm talking about, like, soaps, okay? I'm not a thief. I'm just frugal. And so I saw this recently. So you guys see it real quick? Okay, I saw that. And I don't know if I was just tired or what, but what I read on this, which maybe you guys all just read, I thought it said fresh milked soap. And I was like, what? Fresh milk soap? Like, I prefer oat milk. Like, I pretend to be vegan. Like, fresh milked soap. I was like, there's no way. I've got to be tired. So I go back to read it again, just like you guys read it real quickly. And I said, oh, my gosh. It says fresh milled soap doesn't really help me. I don't know what a mill is. Uh, I stay indoors a lot, so I'm like, I'll have to Google that later. And then a third time, I was like, I'm just, what is this? And then I looked at it again, and it actually says French milled soap. It makes a little bit more sense. I feel a little bit more bougie about this pickup. Um, but it was like this wait what moment that kept happening over and over. At this conference, they were like, hey, we've purchased free books for all the pastors, ministers, and missionaries that are here. It's on the table. And this was the book that was on the table. I did not want to go pick up this book. They're like, there's free books on the table. And I'm like, leadership, next pain. No, what? No, you didn't buy me a free book on pain. I had that like, wait, what moment. And then I saw everybody else at the conference was like, do we grab it? Do you not grab it? Like, uh, I don't, if you feel like, because you know, if you read a Christian book, like it's almost like the Holy Spirit makes you responsible for that book and then puts you through that book. Does it ever happen to you guys? Like you read a book, that's why I stay away from Job. Nope, not for me. I ain't going to play that, no way. 
And in tonight's preparation for our, our text, which is from Matthew 4, it is full of these wait what moments. And if you've been a part of the community this semester, you know we're studying the Gospel of Matthew. We're looking at snapshots, pictures of Jesus interacting with people, interacting with the world around him. We're talking about you know, the man, the truth, the legend. And in Matthew 4, it is completely filled in these 11 verses that we're going to read tonight with wait what moments. So let's read this together. If you have a Bible, that's really cool. If you don't have one, we have some in the lobby we'd love to give you. Some of you carry it around on your phone. That's okay too. Matthew 4, 1 through 11, it says this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness and to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Verse 4. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you. They'll lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot even against a stone. Verse 7, Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Let's pray once more. God, I pray that as we open up your scripture, as we study who you are, God, would we learn who we are meant to be? Would we be honest as we engage with Scripture that it is created, it is designed for correction and rebuke and encouragement. And God, would we not just read it, but would we allow you and your Holy Spirit to read the depths of our hearts and lives through looking at stories and looking at the person of Jesus tonight. And we thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. Have any of you guys noticed what I might call the first wait what moment of this text? There's a lot, so you, you probably won't get it wrong. Anybody else, as you're reading this, you have a wait what moment? You, you have one. You don't want to share it, but you have one. Thank you, Luke Bancroft. He was also in my van. Anybody want to share what they think is like a wait what moment? Like you're reading this, and you're like, ah, I don't know what's happening here. No? Okay, yes. Yeah, 40-day fast. What is going on there? That's crazy. Maybe you don't know this, but in the days of the early church, followers of the way is what Christians were originally called. Um, they would fast two days a week. We see prophets in the Old Testament fasting for large amounts of time. I know it's pre-Taco Bell, but 40 days is a long time. That's one of my wait what moments. Jojo, yeah. Yeah, the book's great, but that's cool too. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of like a wait what moment. Like, how could grace be so big that God comes into humanity, moves into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson says, and then he's kind of like living the human experience. One of the wait what moments for me is right in this first part of this, then Jesus was led by who? Yeah, capital S, the Spirit. Like, led by a member of the Trinity into the wilderness to be tempted. That's a wait what moment for me. What does the Spirit do? Spirit, what's up? I, that's not a song that I sing in worship. Spirit, lead me into the wilderness where I can be tempted by Satan himself. 
Like, I don't know if you guys sing that version. I don't sing that track. Not at my church. So that's a wait what moment. Like, why is, why is this happening to, to Jesus? And what is the Spirit's role in this? And, and here's what's important, I think, for you and I to begin to understand, especially as you're at a pivotal point of, of your life as an emerging adult, as someone who's starting to take the Scriptures seriously. In my reading of Scripture, I find that God allows temptation and testing to happen for us, but he doesn't do it to us. So if you're taking notes, that might be a helpful sentence for you to write down that when it comes to temptation or tempting, in my reading of Scripture, God allows it for us, notice the words I use there, and that he doesn't do it to us. Now that will seem like semantics. That will be a 2 a.m. after TDR argument with the other Christians on your floor until you taste a little bit of suffering. Until you taste a little bit of hardship and suffering, you will not understand why those words in that order, in that structure, mean so much. Because other places in Scripture, the New Testament authors make it very clear that the enemy of our souls, Satan, Lucifer, Beelzebub, whatever name you're more comfortable with, is kind of existing with some type of operational power in the universe around us, that our own flesh and brokenness causes temptation and sin, right? Like you have thoughts that you wish you didn't have to do things you don't want to do, and yet you want to do them. Is it just me, or is it you guys too? Right? Our flesh is working against us. That's why Romans 6, 7, and 8, Paul talks about, like, we don't have to live according anymore to the flesh, but we can live according to the Spirit. God allows it to happen for us, but He doesn't do it to us. We have to be honest, that's not an answer that's always satisfactory to ourselves, or to others who may not know Jesus yet. But as I read the text, that's as close to like a simplified version of what's God's role in suffering, what's God's role in temptation or testing that I can come up with. I mean, even in the story of Job, like it starts because God is bragging on how great Job is to the devil, to the enemy, and then Job loses everything and stays faithful. What's interesting to me is I read scriptures like this, and as I specifically read the Old Testament, it's very important that you begin to learn, as I'm learning, to hold in tension, to hold in tension these two ideas. I, can, I need to study and learn about what this text means and what it says and what it represents historically. But on this hand is that no matter how much study I do, God's going to be God and I'm not God. Like there's this temptation that if we just have such an intellectual lens of perspective on Scripture, God will begin to agree with all that I think. God will begin to vote the way that I vote. God will begin to have things in in, in His heart that are similar to my heart. So yeah, we need to dig into the text and we need to engage. But sometimes it's just being honest with there are troubling texts in Scripture. For me, most of the Old Testament, not my fave, you know. But I'm not God. That has how God decided to kind of rule the universe, and so I need to make sure that I'm willing at all points to submit myself to who God says He is and who He says He's designed me to be. Again, these aren't always the most helpful greeting cards if your friend is suffering. Do not quote me on a greeting card and said, well, just submit to it, friend. Good luck. That's what my pastor Kyle said. Uh, No, these are helpful things for us to learn to build a foundation on when we're in a season where we don't yet experience suffering or devastation that God loves us and he's for us but that even in that Romans 8 passage that said he's working all things together for the good of those who love him 
later in that passage, it's saying that good is defined as conforming to the image of his son, Jesus. And Jesus dealt with some very difficult things. Jesus' life ended in a very horrific and painful way pre-resurrection. I love what missionary Dick Brogdon says. He says, yes, God has a wonderful plan, but it may not always feel or be wonderful for you. We find ourselves part of a larger tapestry, and yes, God is fighting for us. He's pursuing us, but that doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy or simple or pain-free. Another wait-what moment for me from this text is noticing the timing of when Satan comes to tempt Jesus. It is after the baptism of Jesus, which is pretty remarkable. Jesus is baptized. The Heavenly Father shows up kind of in clouds with his voice. Holy Spirit makes an appearance as a dove. That's pretty legit. John the Baptist, like his name is the Baptist, so like to be baptized by him is pretty cool. You know, JTB holding it down. And so we see this great picture of like God working and the start of the ministry and life of Jesus. And then notice, at least in my text, it says like after the 40 days of fasting which would be an important number. Like, it wasn't like it was supposed to be a 41-day fast, and then Satan came, and he's like, no, I'll cut it down to 40. Uh, no, it, it, it meant something to the Jewish framework at that time. 40 days was significant for consecration, and it's at the end of that that Satan comes. I'm not saying that's the only way that Satan or the enemy will work in your life, but I can tell you from personal experience, for me, it's always after a spiritual high or a spiritual win or a great moment that the enemy tries to invade my story. It's always after welcome weeks. It's always after fall retreat baptisms. It's always after celebration Thursday. And what I find the enemy does in my life, and he might be trying to do in yours, is he tries to get you to do things um, that maybe you used to do, an area that you have found victory or freedom over. And in this text, it's interesting what the enemy is offering Jesus. He's offering him a shortcut to God's plan. So he's trying to get Jesus to believe the lie. Well, if Jesus is supposed to be God, then it doesn't matter which way he gets there. And Jesus has to respond to the enemy with Scripture, which brings me to another wait what moment. Why does Satan sound like a Sunday school teacher in this text? Like Satan is using the Bible to try to trick the Son of God. And what's interesting is that if Jesus, 100% God, 100% man, if he needs Scripture in order to refute temptation, then so do I. He's, he's leaning on something external. He's leaning on something objective. He's leaning on something powerful outside of himself to find a moment of victory, to find a moment of resolve. And he's doing it by leaning on Scripture. And I think that's probably uh, the, the way that most of us nowadays find ourselves being tempted. It's to do things that sound spiritual, where we could come up with, like, we could have a backing verse for and we can make the decision, it could sound like we're right, but we're actually not. I love what Jim Collins talks about in his business book. He says that the enemy of great is good. And, and so I think this is at, at play in our lives, is that there's this temptation to do things our way and then to add some spiritual dressing to it. And we can even use the Bible to try to back up what we're doing, even if it's outside God's will for us in that moment or in that time or in that season. And here's also kind of what I want to bring to mind, is that when we think of the idea of redemption, it makes sense in a framework where our flesh is working one way, our spirit wants to make another move, 
The enemy is out there kind of roaming, trying to tempt us and trick us. Like it's a system of choice and free will. Because in order for God to have a desire to redeem things from Jesus, it presupposes that not everything that God or Jesus does is preordained or predetermined. Like why would you want to redeem something, to redo something, to renovate something that if you had your fingerprints on it fully from the beginning? And so we see as God pursues us in his love, there's lots of choices and everyone's brokenness happens differently, but God is there. The through line through all of scripture is his desire for redemption. And here's what I think is important for us to note is you may be in a season of wilderness. That's totally theologically possible. You could be in a season of testing. You might be in a drought. You might be in exile. You might be living among people that believe differently than you, but you're called by God to live a radical life set apart. But if I'm being honest, seven times out of ten when a student comes to me, or if I even look at the journals of my own life, when I claim that I have a wilderness, testing, drought, exile moment, it's really just a moment of self-imprisonment where I've willingly put on the handcuffs of self-sufficiency. Where I've said, well, why, why am I not having you know, great devotional times with Jesus? Well, probably because I'm sleeping through my devotional times. Hey, why do I not feel connected in a group of friends? I feel like I'm made for a relationship, but I haven't been to small group in three weeks. Or hey, I, I really want to learn more about who God is, but man, I haven't been to church, I haven't been to Thursday night worship. I want to lovingly tell you what I wish someone would have told me is it's very easy to over-spiritualize your current situation by using a word that sounds good, like I'm in a wilderness, I'm being tested, it's a drought, I'm in exile. Uh, but it might also be self-imprisonment. Now, it's not always self-imprisonment because I know people that wake up every single morning, pray for an hour and a half, read scripture, engage in giving to the poor who serve others, who love Jesus, who are faithful to him and they still struggle but I think that it's important that as we come to scripture we have to be honest with our own responsibility as to where are we and how did we get there this story of the temptation of Jesus like Jojo mentioned is so important to our Christology to our understanding of Christ because it tells us which is reemphasized in Hebrews 6 is that Jesus is the best priest that we could ever ask for. Jesus doesn't offer sacrifices on our behalf. He offers himself as a sacrifice. He doesn't live outside uh, of like the community. He doesn't live apart from it like the Levites in the Old Testament, but he lives in it. He's in the mess with us. And he can look at us and say to, to us to be holy and to walk rightly because he has done that. Jonathan Martin in his book, Prototype, makes this argument that I believe wholeheartedly. He says that all the cool Jesus stuff that Jesus does, whether it's feeding thousands of people, healings, miracles, all that stuff, he's doing from his identity, being 100% human, but with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Now follow me, that's why it's not controversial or weird to the early church and to the disciples when Jesus says, you'll do all the things that I did and even more. Like we read that and we're like, ah, oh, not sure that stuff's happening in our services. But when they read that, they understood that because yes, Jesus was 100% God and 100% man, but in those moments, he was relying on the Holy Spirit. And he's inviting us to a life of the Spirit. That's why the Spirit is being talked about here in the early part of Matthew 4. In all of Romans, Paul seems obsessed with the Spirit. Don't be fooled. He loves the Spirit. And, and so we have to find ourselves, how do we engage with who Jesus is? 
Well, a lot of it has to do with what are the ways of the Spirit and how is Jesus inviting us into the ways of the kingdom. On a practical note, this passage about temptation helps you and I to understand that in our relationships, in our, in our relationships with brothers and sisters in the faith, one of the things that helps us to grow is confession. Absolutely. I feel like I'm always beating on the confession drum. Like the folks in my DNA group, my men's small group for, for small group leaders know, like I'm always wanting to talk about confession. I always make them awkwardly say after the confession, like if it was Johnny confessing, because um, he's not perfect, so he confesses. I, you know, I say, Johnny, because of the love of Jesus and because of your uh, confession, you're forgiven. Like I love saying that and hearing that prayed over me too. But what's important about this passage and that I was reminded of is that our relationships, whether you call them accountability, iron sharpens iron, brothers and sisters in Christ, whatever name you have, repentance and confession is a huge part of that. But a missing block is how do we navigate temptation? Because accountability relationships shouldn't just be me and you crying over our sins together. That's part of it. It shouldn't just be patting on the back and helping somebody to turn around what that word repent means and to walk differently. That's, that's an element of it. But it's being honest before the decision to make an action or to say a word that's not in God's design for us. That would be sin, missing the mark. It's spending time processing why are we tempted? What does this temptation mean for me? Why do I want to manage stress by making this decision? Does that make sense? Like, it's helpful to tell your small group leader, your staff mentor, kind of where you've missed the mark, where you've sinned, but it's even more helpful for your growth to kind of say, this is where I find temptation appear in my life and in my story. So that you're not just dealing with the kind of the results of temptation, but temptation itself. And really, to boil it down, temptation is one of two things. It's either asking us to believe something untrue about God or asking us to believe something untrue about ourselves. That's what we see in the Genesis creation narrative. The devil was, was tempting Adam and Eve to believe something differently about who God was and about who they were in God in the garden. This passage for me reminds me as a follower of Jesus that it's not spirit or scripture it's spirit and scripture i mean jesus relies on the gift of scripture in order to fight for spiritual freedom i love that willpower isn't the answer here i love that like plug your ears la 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 isn't the answer here that as we experience things that happen in our lives that can only be explained supernaturally then the only appropriate response is one of a supernatural nature it says other places in Scripture that we're not fighting against humans, against people. We're fighting against spirits. There's a spiritual reality that exists around us, and we're trying to engage in it, and we're to do that with the Spirit, and we're to do that with Scripture. I love what the Jesuits say, and it's a quote from St. Ignatius, is this, is that the more self-aware you are, the more you're able to be aware of who God is. The more self-aware you are, the more you're able to be aware of who God is. Now, that doesn't mean having a me-centered faith, but it does saying, how can you look at the image of God imprinted on you? If you're a follower of Jesus, how can you look at the spirit deposit and seal placed in you? And how can you, as you get to know yourself, truly experience self-discovery with God? 
And I also like that it tells us that the more I know about who I am, how I'm wired to connect with God and with others, how I am postured to deal with stress and anxiety, both in a healthy and in negative ways, that the more I follow that trail, the more I can see the heart of God the Father. Like the more I'm willing to be honest with my doubts and my brokenness, the more beautiful God's grace becomes. I get this question a lot um, from people that want to invest financially and, and pray for Chi Alpha. Uh, pastors from all over the country ask me, like, what's the greatest barrier to the gospel um, at American University? If they're listening, I love them and care for them. But they're always like, what's the greatest barrier, you know? Is it politics? Is it liberalism? Uh, is it the quad? You know, I don't know what they say. You know, is it internships? You know, um, I, don't, I don't know what they have in their mind. You know, is it Russian spies embedded in every class? I have got that question. Um, but the real thing is this, and my pastor says it this way, it's self-sufficiency. Because you can't be self-sufficient and Holy Spirit dependent. That's why if you'll notice, through great moves of renewal and awakening and revival in history, and if you want to study, if you're the type of person that's like, everything I say you want to study and fact check, then this part of the sermon is for you. Because every time we see this happen historically, a great move of God happens. There's signs and wonders and many conversions and like a true authentic refreshing of a city or community or country. Notice that it's often led by a group of people who are not very educated. And here's why I'd make that point is because the more education you have, the more intellect you have, the more appealing the temptation for self-sufficiency is going to be. If you look at a list of maybe a hundred of the fastest growing churches, you know, in America, very few of those people, some I've had a chance to meet, are like the smartest people in the room, but they are the most dependent on God. I, I remember, um, you know, someone lovingly looking at me one time, and, and you guys are probably smarter than I was. You're not smarter than I am. I mean, hear that. But you're smarter than I was when I was your age. And this young, she wasn't young, this lady at our church, I was going to say she was young, but that's a lie. This older lady at our church, I mean, she wasn't a foot into heaven, but it was like a tiptoe. And um, she looked at me once, and she said, Blaine, the way your brain works is either going to help you minister to people, or it's going to prevent you from being reliant on the Holy Spirit. Like, well, that's an encouragement with coffee and donuts, right? But it's this idea that we think and we've been taught and you've arrived here at college, you've been, you can do it. Like as long as you do hashtag self-care, you can do it. But this passage shows that even Jesus can't do it himself. And he's not involved in self-care. He's fasting for 40 days. And he relies on the Spirit through Scripture to refute what the devil is saying about him and what the devil is saying about God's perceived plans for his life and for his story. And so here's just a few bullet points that I wrote down as I kind of finally got through all the what-ifs of this passage in preparation, is that sin is universal. Everyone is tempted, even Jesus. Jesus refuted the devil using scriptures, and it's interesting to note that the devil used scripture out of context. That's a danger, is to use scripture to fit our own means and ideas instead of submitting ourselves to the person of God and to the person of Jesus that we find in Scripture. It's also important to note, if you're anything like me, you're a little bit type A, you're a rule follower, you know, you like to have organized lists. I mean, my desk is never organized, but my lists sometimes are. 
It's important for you to hear this, that temptation isn't sin. Sin is sin. Temptation isn't sin. But imagine if you were Jesus. You just got baptized. The Holy Spirit and Father God showed up to, you know, bring some cred to the whole thing. You just fasted for 40 days. That's an awkward moment to begin to tell your small group, by the way, I was tempted to do some magic to turn these stones into bread. Like, you know, like, I feel like the enemy often comes at you and I at a place and posture it would be very countercultural to share where we're broken. I know for me, I was sharing this with my guys, like, I think it was after a, a great event a few weeks ago um, that we had on campus, and I, I just told one of my guys over coffee, like, man, I, I haven't, like, looked at pornography in 10 years, but that, like, desire is, is, like, there. It's like, why would that, like, why would that happen after I just preached what in my mind was a killer sermon, you know, if you people came to the Lord? But it's like, I, we have to go out of our way and be uncomfortable in being open with other people, because what we keep in secret will grow in shame. If you experience temptation and you don't share about that temptation, you're like two seconds away from shifting from temptation to sin. And what's interesting about sin, and one of the great reformers wrote this, he said, we can't really break God's laws, we just break ourselves on God's laws. And I love that picture and portrait that I can't really break or violate the laws of God any more than I can violate the laws of gravity. But I can, I will have ir seemingly irreparable harm if I continue to throw myself against who God says he is and who, who he says I am. Mike talked about a little bit this is at the retreat this weekend, but this idea when it comes to living the Christian life is that willpower is really not the solution. Willpower is never enough. So the question that you and I have to ask ourselves is when we experience temptation, will we respond with truth, the truth of scriptures? And I love that scriptures allow me to live beyond my feelings, as Dallas Willard says that I'm no longer imprisoned by my own desires, some of which are good, some of which are noble, most of which are not, that I don't have to be the extent or the, I'm not just the culmination of my feelings, but as a human being through the power of my mind, and that's where transformation takes place according to Paul writing to the church in Rome, will be transformed and renewed by the spirit in our mind, that that's where I can hold on to an anchor, something greater, something stronger than my current experience. And it probably goes without saying that if we're talking about temptation, it means that we have to have an accurate view of sin. Sin, missing the mark. Living according to something that God has designed us not to. Not doing or not being who he says we are. I share this with our pre-service prayer folks. One of my favorite quotes by Spurgeon is, if we, have a small, if we have small sins, we'll have a small savior. So you may not even be thinking about your, how you navigate temptation because you've kind of narrowed down sin to be a list of things that only other people do, if I'm being honest, right? We can rationalize ourselves. Well, what I, I kind of make mistakes. I don't really sin. I kind of slip up, you know. Uh, no, we are working in contrast to who God says we are. And the beauty of recognizing that is that then we're offered the gift and the joy of repentance. See, if we fool ourselves that we aren't ever in a place of temptation or sin, well, we're not living in the power of the gospel, but we're also not being honest with the renovation that God is trying to do in our hearts from being people that were slaves to sin and death and now slaves 
to righteousness, as one of the New Testament authors puts it. As we look at the person of Jesus in Matthew 4, I find my heart growing fonder of Jesus. And the fact that he would, he would do this for us. He would leave heaven and leave home and, and face the things that you and I face. Like If I were Jesus, I would have at least done it in a period of time that had air conditioning or, or like espresso machines. But no, 2,000 years ago, he enters the scene and he goes all in for us. And then he shows us that it's possible to live a life that brings honor and glory to God. Not because he's also God and divine, but because he's reliant on the Spirit and through scriptures. As the worship band comes up, it reminds me of two quotes in closing. One is this, is that D.L. Moody said that if you give me ten people who believe in the word of God, I could change the world. If you give me ten people that be willing to ransom their lives against the promises of God and the portrait of Jesus in the scriptures, we could turn everything upside down. I think of the great uh, reformer Rolf Bernard. He says, one day someone's going to come alongside us as reformers and think highly of the spirit and think highly of the word. And as they think highly of both, they'll do things that we've never done before. It's this idea that you and I live in tension. Scriptures say that we're, we're citizens of heaven. We're supposed to be on and in earth, but not of earth. And we're kind of in this like waiting place, right? Romans 8 and 9 says that like creation is groaning for perfection to happen. All of us see brokenness in the world around us, which Lewis would say like that tells us that we have an idea of what's straight and right and true. And we're called not just to sit passively in that tension, but to stand up to temptation, to live beyond our feelings, and to do so by the power of the Spirit and the gift of Scripture. Why don't you stand with me as we pray and respond tonight? God, I pray that it would be true that your words, quoting Scripture, would be true for me in this community. Like it says in verse 4, that we shall not live on bread alone, but that we would actually live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus, be the thing that our eyes, our mind, our heart, our desires feast upon. And God, I pray that we would see the gift of walking in righteousness with you. It's not a list of things we can't or shouldn't do. It's about living abundantly according to you. I pray this would resonate with us, that you'd shape us and that we'd never forget that you lived just like us and you walked closely with the Father. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Hey, maybe you need to take some time to kneel or to pray, to come to the altar, to fill out a prayer request with the prayer bucket. We'll have some of our upperclassmen, small group leaders on the side. Maybe you need someone to pray with. But I want to invite you not to put out of your mind kind of your temptations, your sin, your brokenness, but instead bring that to God and bring that to one of God's people. And as the Word and Spirit enable you, I know that you'll find victory and power because that's what God's desire is for you. Let's worship and pray together.